0: If you're note takers, you know, uh, if you have the app, this is in the note, uh, in the app, all the notes are in the app, but if you're a note taker, it's kind of a starting point or a main idea. Uh, Today's title is just full of things, empty of God. So Isaiah calls God's people back to true worship, beginning with the removal of anything that hinders their, of course, or our, right, our faith in God. So anything that would hinder. Anything that would get in the way, anything that needs to be removed, may we look at this through the eyes of what we need to remove as Isaiah is speaking to the people 2,750, 2,800 years ago. It's just as relevant today as it was then. And so we remember that as Isaiah speaks to the people then, we too struggle with the same things. So I, yes, see, now you know it's true. All right, good. Isaiah chapter 2. Let's go back to verse 1. It says that the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. We began the book last week. We opened up chapter 1 of Isaiah. If you were here, it was a heavy passage, right? If you watched it online or if if you were here last Sunday, I just, honestly, I remember going through it, preparing for it, just thinking... Man, it's just like it needs to be said, like it's relevant and true today, but it's heavy. And, and, and as God just unpacked this, this, this pronouncement over people's worship, where he says, listen, your worship is in vain. I wish you'd stop. I've quit listening to your prayers. Your burdens grieve me. Like when you open up your hands to pray to me, he says, I'm not listening anymore. And then he reminds them, and, and the passage, as always, and, and it's not, if you watch this online, it's not in there. This was at the end of our service last week. I just said this, that no message in any Christian church should end without hope, right? That it should never end in shame or condemnation or even simple conviction. Conviction is necessary, like when we are wrong, we need to be convicted of wrong and, and caused to turn and, and, and to repent and to, to return to God. But it should never just stop there. It should always have that hope. And so this week we see that. Last week we saw that in, in the, in the, kind of in the back end of the passage. It reminded us to come and return. And God promising to cleanse and to heal. And today's passage begins with this casting a vision of a better future. And so as Isaiah begins to speak, here's what we get. We get Isaiah, this prophet, speaking to the people of God, again, roughly 27, 2800 years ago, uh, during some different kingdoms and a a different season in God's people. And at this time, the, the folks in Judah and Israel, the northern and southern kingdoms, they're at really a high point in the, in, the, in the state of their nations, if you will. So they're, they're wealthy nations this time, they're, they're powerful, nobody's governing over them. And they're really uh, a, lot like, a lot like we can be, kind of resting in their own security. Resting in the comfort of the security of their own finances, or their own stability, or their own nation, or whatever it is. And, and really, if we think about it, that sounds a lot like how we can be. Right? As Americans, we can rest in the comfort of our own stabilities. And because of that, their their hearts are there, and they're not dependent upon God. Now, God who gave them all of this has now been pushed off to the side. And we know that, and and again, I, I, I love looking at the context and saying, this is what they're doing, but we have to recognize this is what we do. Right? Like, when we're in need and we're in the depth of a problem, we're in pain because of a loss or a grief or a, or a struggle, we tend to, to cry out to God a lot, spend time with God a lot, and then we'll watch as God in his, in his grace and his mercy weaves his way into that story and, and, and meets that, those needs and those answers. And then all of a sudden we're back on the top of our game, if you will, and all of a sudden we forget how we got there. And that's where they are. And so this is written in a season of prosperity. This is written to them in a season of stability. And yet it's going to say things about how really unstable and about how really impoverished they are. And so this is the context. And and, and as we, as a nation right now, can really hear a lot of the same things. We can hear the same message to us. So verse 2. And I'm going to, bear with me, I'm going to break this this verse into into pieces just because I think a lot is said here. So verse 2, it says, it shall come to pass in the latter days. Now, there's a lot of buzz around end times, right? Would you agree with that? I mean, if you're in Southern California now, we have been, uh, we as a part of this country, in other words, different than the rest of our country, there's a lot of... uh, There's so many churches that have myopically focused on end times that people here in Southern California that don't even attend a church think that Christians think in a specific way about end times. Is that fair? Books written, movies done, and whatever else, right? Now, you broaden out beyond Southern California, you find out that the vast majority of the church doesn't think that way. You move around the globe, you look throughout 2,000 years of church history, and you just find that the church hasn't always thought some of the things that are assumed today. But there is a fascination with end times. Now, it's not what this is saying. When it talks about the latter days, a lot of times our ears perk up and we hear end times. Let me just break this up in big, broad stroke, biblical categories. There's, there's the former days, if you will, a lot of language around the former days or the earlier days of the old covenant or a lot of different things that are said there. And really, that's talking about the days that precede Jesus. That's it. So those are the former days. The Bible calls them, those are the days of the past, or the days of the prophets, or the former days. That's everything leading up to Jesus. And then there's, there's obviously that short window of about 33, 34 years where Jesus is born, lives, dies, is buried, raises from the dead, and ascends back to heaven. So there's that, that window of all the things that God had been prophesying about in the former days being completed, Now, not fully completed, not fully consummated like the end, like things will be. But what that is, is that inaugurated the latter days. So it's former and latter. Those are the two periods, really, of human history. We see this in actually modern human culture, be it secular or Christian. There's B.C. and A.D., right? Or common era and before common era, as people have shifted to in academic circles now, right? So time splits in half Secular or faith-based splits in half around Jesus. You can call it before common era or common era and eliminate Jesus or God from the language. It's still true. It's still splitting it on one person in history. Fair? Former days, latter days of which we are in. Now, latter days does not mean absolute end days, but it just means latter days. It's just talking about the season in which... The gospel has been inaugurated, and that we're still waiting on, and this is the third epoch of time, eternity. Right? That's it. Just big broad stroke categories. This is being written. Isaiah is written in the former days, in the in the Old Testament. This is written before Jesus. And so when it says this, it shall come to pass in the latter days. They are looking forward to something that will take place. Now, Isaiah will write a lot about what's going to shift time. But he'll do that in many, many chapters from now. So we'll get there. But you also have to understand when Isaiah writes, and we said this last week, Isaiah writes to them about things that are going to happen to them in their day. Judgment will come in their day. It will also foreshadow things that will happen at the inauguration of eternity. Okay? Okay? But understand, most prophets, when we hear the word prophet, we think of future telling. We think of someone who prophesies about something far in the future, things that have not happened yet. And really, Isaiah is saying this, hear what God says today. Hear where you are today. Check yourself today, because here's what's coming right away. And so this is how Isaiah writes. Now, there's a lot of application for us. But this is what he's saying in his context. So, verse 2 again. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. couple things. When I say Temple Mount, do you guys all have a picture of a Temple Mount? No? There's a place in Jerusalem, this, this high peak. It's not the highest, but it is a high peak. And, and many have hypothesized that At once it was the highest peak, but it doesn't really matter. It was a high part in Jerusalem where Solomon's temple was built. Now, in this era, when Isaiah's writing, Solomon's temple is still around. It will be sacked and and, and burned to the ground um, by the armies that Isaiah prophesies about, that tells them about. Hey, repent, or God's going to let these nations around you come in and wipe you out. They don't repent. That's going to happen in the book of Isaiah, Right? So this is what he's saying. Well, then they'll rebuild that. There's the second temple. They will rebuild on that site. That will get destroyed later, burned to the ground around 70 AD, so about 1900-plus years ago. Today sits the Dome of the Rock, a mosque. Okay? So let that sink in for a minute. The high point of Judaism was a temple in the midst of the Holy Land, if you will, right? Right there in the midst of their nation, seated on a mountain, seated on a hill, right? This beautiful temple up on a hill. All the people could look and like that, that's the spot, that Solomon built that if you're living here. Or, hey, Solomon built something there and then it got burned to the ground and we rebuilt. Now just, I want you to hear this. This repeated call of God is for them to return in their worship of God. If you don't, I'm going to let others come in and wipe you out, okay? They don't listen. God does that. They return to God. They rebuild. They drift again. God speaks out. God tells them the same thing. They don't listen again. God lifts his hand off them, wipes them out, and today there's a Muslim mosque on that hill. Okay, so warning for the church, right? Like we ought to hear that, that God is a gracious and benevolent God, but there is a call, right? And that there is judgment, and judgment doesn't just mean eternal, but when, when God says, listen, I will lay my hand on you and bless you and keep you, I will, I will hang on to you, but the deal is, you, you then worship me. In fact, I would say, then you worship me alone. And when you don't, I'm going to tell you, hey, you're drifting. Hey, you're drifting, Hey, return. Hey, you don't even look like you worship me anymore. You're no different than the people around you. Last call. And then it's just like, well, whoop, there you go. Everybody comes in and conquers. For how long, we don't know. But we got to hear that, too, even if it's not a theocracy like Israel or Judah. But even if it's just us here in the city of Cerritos, in a little local church called Generations, right? Verse two, one more time. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains shall be lifted up above the hills and the nations shall flow to it. So here's what he's saying. Listen, there's going to come a time when that big temple on the hill isn't going to matter that we're going to build a house that cannot be destroyed, right? And so again, Jesus, Jesus is being foreshadowed here in Isaiah. Isaiah is saying, listen, we're going to do this. And you've got to hear it in their context, like we've already got this. And Isaiah is saying, yeah, and you're going to lose it if you don't pay attention. But then there's going to come a day where you and your beautiful temple will not house the center of worship. That the center of worship will be Jesus and not a building. Right? And we need to hear that. We're brand new in a building. This is not the church. Right? This, this structure, the things that we do, the stage, the cross, this is not the church. Like, we are the church. The people, we are the church. We worship Jesus. Jesus cannot be contained in these four walls. And so we got to remember that now Jesus is the focus. And it says this, and all the nations shall flow to it. So God's promise fulfilled, right? Solomon's temple was destroyed due to their refusal to repent and return to God. The, this promise of worship restored is around Jesus rather than a building, and all nations worshiping God is fulfilled in us today, right? That's us. And here's what's really cool is we're not all myopically one nationality or ethnicity or race or one color or one age group or one socioeconomic status. In fact, as we keep kind of just taking stock of who's here, there's not even a dominant ethnicity here, right? Right? That we just kind of look like our city. And that we just reflect the people around us as, as we embed in a neighborhood. That's all nations coming to worship. And there's, there's a truth about geographical nations. There's a truth that Jesus will be worshipped all over the planet. And, and the, the, the largest base of faith or the largest religion in the pla- on the planet today, by far, is Christianity. In all its Variety and differences, but it's Orthodox or Catholic or Protestant, whatever it might be, it's still all those that unite around Jesus cover the globe. That this is fulfilled in us today is incredible. But the warnings remain the same of keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, right? As Hebrews says, the author and finisher of our faith. So verse 3, it says, and many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. To the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And so out of Zion, Zion becomes this this place or this this way of talking about Jesus leading not from a building, not from a a location on a map, not, not some GPS coordinates, but that Jesus will lead from his high holy hill called Zion. And so it just continues. Now remember, Isaiah 1 was this big, heavy, like when you pray, I don't even want to hear it anymore. Your worship should cease. Your holiday should go away because you're so far from me. Now, now Isaiah, now God through Isaiah is is painting us a picture of something better. God's saying, here, here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to see. I want to see people over the planet. Not even I want to, but I will see people all over the world worship me. Throughout history, worship me. Every age and ethnicity, every language, every tongue, tribe, and people, they will all worship Jesus. And we will lose this idea that a building is where we worship. Right? We need to hear that too. Like that we begin our week, Sunday morning begins our week here corporately gathered, which is incredibly important, we talked about that in January, that this is, this is deeply needed, but that we can continue to worship throughout the week, be it in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our community groups, in the things that we like to do, in our hobbies, in our families, whatever it might be. That we get that kind of coming together and, and supporting one another and then going out. That we gather and then we scatter. And so... We get to see this preferred future lived out in us. And then it calls us to mission to say, many people shall come and many people shall say, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord. Listen to how this is reflected all the way at the end of the Bible in, in Revelation 22. As it says, the spirit and the bride say, now the spirit, right, the Holy Spirit of God, and then the bride, that's the church, right? Say, and let the one who hears say, come. So then the hearers are now saying also, come. And let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the pure water of life without price. Now, I know that oftentimes the book of Revelation is presented as something as something that will happen in the future. I would suggest to you that it is something that is not only happening now, but will happen again and again until eternity. And we can have that conversation, unpack that, when we go through that book. But understand, when it says many of these things, this is all the way at the end the last two chapters that are, that, are, that are telling a better future of what God desires, what God has designed, as we get all the way into that, we see that now. We see pieces of that. We see shades of that, shadows of that. Not a completed that, but we see pieces of it. And definitely what we get to experience here is a lot of variety and a lot of different nations, a lot of different people, one nation, but a lot of different people groups coming together and worshiping God. But what's important is it reminds us that us, that we, that the people that come also, that we are a people of mission, that we are a people who invite others to come. right? That what we have found here, if we have found grace and mercy and love, if we have found forgiveness and redemption, that if we have found that, that, that we should be a people that welcome other people, that call other people to join with us. That we should say, listen, I have found something so so deep and so satisfying in Jesus that I want you to have that. So it says the spirit and the bride both say come. So the spirit of God is out there drawing people, but we should join in. And that we should invite as well. We should, we should say, come find what I have found life in. Right, Verse 4, he, <clears throat> Jesus in this case, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Last week I said something that, that, that stuck, and we've talked about it a few times uh, over the week. I said that there is no political solution to a spiritual problem. Right? We were talking about some of the things embedded in, in, in our culture and how we often respond by trying to legislate it or vote it in or change it by voting the next right person, man or woman or whatever, in, right? But then it said there's no political solution to a spiritual problem. Listen to how the, and, and this is obviously a, a cultural hot topic right now of racism and war. All those things are in the news right now. There's potential wars in Syria and there's wars potentially winding down that we've been in for two decades we talk about racism and, and division and politics of identity. And just listen, it says, and he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn of war anymore. Jesus says this, when, when I gather all, worship of Jesus eradicates all those issues. Right? You can't gather here and worship the same God and judge the person sitting next to you by the color of their skin. You can't judge them by their job or their income bracket. You can't judge them even by their politics. You can, and here we're imperfect. We can disagree. We can, we can wrestle through issues. But here, this is where it's a level playing field. This is where we say all are separated from God by sin and that all must come through Christ alone. Here is, where the, here is where equality is found. Here is where peace is found. And when this, when this level playing field trickles out, this is where Jesus says, and then there will be no more need for war. And just paints this picture of a future of peace. So peace. Isaiah casts God's vision of true peace through Christ. This vision stands as a clear view of a preferred future if we pursue God completely. And here's what he says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So here's this preferred future. Here's this day where Jesus will reign and not in a building. Here's this day where we will all look and set our eyes upon what we will see is Christ and not division, Christ and not religion, Christ through faith we will see. And we will not be dependent upon a nation or a tribe or a language or something that we will all look and that all the divisions that separate us today will be united in Christ and that there will be no more wars on this planet and he paints this picture and he says literally you will instead of it's just not just no more war but instead this bountiful harvest that you will take your swords and you'll you'll beat them into farming implements because you need them and you don't need swords and so he paints this picture, so God on the heels of this heavy Isaiah 1, this, this saying of listen, your worship is in vain, and on the heels of all this calling the church or calling the people of God to repentance, he then begins to paint this picture of what things will be, in fact, what things should be, but that sin has ruined and what God is restoring. And then he says, and he invites us all, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Come, let us walk the way God calls us to walk. Come, let us live the way God has created us to live. Verse 6, he says, for you, meaning God. Now, Isaiah, we have to follow through. The the pronouns sometimes need clarity. And so now Isaiah, in this vision, is speaking back to God. So Now, Isaiah, on the other side of this, has written this down for us. And so now Isaiah speaking back to God says this, for you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike their hands with the children of foreigners. So here's this preferred future that God has painted on the heels of, here's what we're doing. So here's what we're doing. Here's what God wants for us. And now Isaiah, his heart cries out to God He says, God. But you've rejected us. Here's the example he gives. Because they're full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike their hands with children of foreigners. Now remember what Isaiah said last week in Isaiah chapter 1. He says this, your silver has become like dross and your best wine mixed with water. Now I've never done anything with silver. But... Obviously, we, if you've heard this taught in churches or whatever, silver is heated and heated until the dross, the impurities, the flaws are heated and they rise up and they are scooped off until you get a pure metal. This is true of gold, of silver, of whatever. And so this, the, the thing that is the impurity is called dross. And he says, so it's like you've taken your pure metal, your pure silver, your pure gold, and it's like you've added the impurities back in it. You've taken your best wine and you've watered it down. And we talked about this last week that when we, when, we, uh, when we water down the message of the gospel, when we water down our worship, right? It's like silver with dross in it or wine that's watered down. Right? We water down our message. We water down the actual gospel itself as we add things into it. In verse six, he's saying this because you're full of things from the east, full of fortune tellers, Like the Philistines, they strike their hands with the children of foreigners, right? Modern equivalents that are super common in our day, right? Christians who also have psychics or astrologists, right? Oh, I got to read my horoscope for the day or go to someone else to tell me the future. Or, and this is super common, right? Christians that speak about karma, and I know most people just mean kind of like what comes around goes around. I get that. But karma is, is something embedded in an Eastern religion. In Hinduism and Buddhism, speaking about the things that you do have a cosmic, divine if you will, but have a cosmic recourse, right? Which is completely counter to the gospel. But Christians that are so watered down by the culture that we're in will go and pursue fortune telling. We have language just engrafted in us that is counter to God. And again... I. I don't want to light any fires that I have to put out later, but Oprah, right? I mean, like, just the entirety of the New Age, God within you, belief that creeps into all of Christianity, that self-help and self-esteem, when when God never calls us, He calls us to God help and God esteem. And I know, a bunch of you are, like, questioning, like, wait a minute, but there's self-esteem issues. I know. I get it. Trust me. Trust Trust God. Never does he call us to exalt ourselves. In fact, every time we do, he calls us to repentance. And yes, understanding the image of God in you is incredibly important, but it's still not self-esteem. And it's still not, self-help is not the ultimate answer. Help in Christ is the answer. Right, the idea of our image, right, that we are created in God's image, yes, but he made us out of dirt. Somewhere in between there's probably a good self-image, Right. (laughs) But modern psychology, Eastern religion, New ageism all these things drift in, and every newspaper has a horoscope and everything, and so it just creeps in. And God's saying, you're taking something as pure as a beautiful, precious metal, and you're just pouring junk in. That you're taking the gospel that needs none of your help, and you're adding to it Right? That big warning that comes out of the Bible in Revelation neither take away nor add to this. Right? That you would not try and change what God has made. False worship. The technical term for this is syncretism, when we take and we sync different things together. We, just like every generation before us, struggle with missing false, mixing false worship in with true worship. Isaiah reminds us that God rejects worship mixed with idolatry. Verse 7 says, the land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Here's what he's saying. Listen, in your place now, instead of a dependence upon God, is a comfort within your things, right? You have a wealth that you rely on, not God, right? And remember, the undercurrent is, remember, I gave you everything, right? The Lord gives, and the Lord can take away right? That's Job. Job says that. The Lord gave to me and he took it away. Like, blessed be the Lord. That's what he says, right? Just God's in charge. I can't stop it so I might as well just get on board. And God is reminding them, remember, it's me that blessed you. Not your job. I'm the one to give you breath and along so you can go to work so you can get a paycheck. It's me. If you have a skill, I gave it to you. That you would honor me with it. Right? The timeless example of someone who's unemployed and hurting and broke and comes to the church and is just broken before God, desiring of a job and and just prays and prays and we get their prayer requests each week. And and please, if that's you, please let us pray with you, right? But then a job comes and then we're behind and so we got to work extra days and the next thing you know, they're just workaholics and they're they're living in their satisfaction of having a job and having an income and they forgot where the job came from. This is what he says. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there's no end to their treasures. The land is filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. And I know there's a lot of us in here that feel broke, right? But there is none of us in here that are not in the 3% of wealth in the entire world. All of us, right? Broke for us is we have last year's iPhone, right? (laughs) Except for you Android heathens, but anyhow, right? (laughs) False worship. Money is not evil, but the struggle not to place our security and finances is as old as humanity. Believing in God, but trusting in money is false worship. Verse 8, the land is filled with idols, Isaiah says. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled. Each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Now understand, Isaiah is, just, Isaiah is getting a glimpse Kind of from God's perspective, if you will, God has just un- just uncovered Isaiah's eyes, and Isaiah is like, "Man, they are not worth being forgiven, right?" And I-, I would just say, if he saw us today, we're just not worth being forgiven. If we just admit how bad we can be and how bad we often are, of course we don't deserve forgiveness. That's why it's called grace. That's why forgiveness is mercy, not deserve. That's why Romans says, listen, if you work for it, it's an income. If it's free, it's a gift. He says, they don't deserve your grace, God. And then the, just, the, just the thing behind that is, but God, you're so good. But God, you forgive us anyhow. But God, you, you meet us where we are. False worship, idolatry. Anything, even good things that God has given us, when placed before God, is idolatry. Jobs, family, kids, education, finances, status, etc. All good things that can quickly become idols. Note what Isaiah says: They bow down to the work of their hands. Now we get a very good image in Old Testament times and in New Testament times. Even as Paul is in Ephesus in the book of Acts, and it says that the those that worship Artemis and the silversmiths that make the actual idols of Artemis, right? or Diana, that they worship that. They literally worship the creations of their hands. So they take a piece of wood, they carve it out, they make it look this way, and then they bow down to it. Now it sounds crazy, but we do it too. Right? By the house we live in, the car that we drive, like the families we create, the image we portray, the education, the job, we do it too. That we are the same people that we bow down to things we have made. And the irony is, if I made it, I'm greater than this thing, right? And why would I worship it? That we would would bow down to things that our own hands made. Verse 10 says this, Enter into the rock and hide from the dust, from before the terror of the Lord, and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of a man, or prideful looks of a man, will be brought low. And the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So there's the in that day, right? And so we've talked about the former days, the latter days, we've talked about eternity. And then there's a in that day. And it talks about often the day of the Lord. And again, we hear that. And I think with a Southern California influence, with so many, with such a movement over the last hundred years of end times focused churches that we hear in that day, and we think of one day, and that's natural. But understand that Isaiah says in that day, and then the Babylonians are going to wipe them out. And then they're going to kind of shuffle things around, and then the Persians are going to wipe them out. And then things are going to get shuffled around again, and then the Greeks are going to wipe them out. Then the Romans are going to wipe them out. And so when we hear in that day, don't think of some penultimate one day, but that it's that day of judgment when God says enough is enough. Enough. Right? Like, I've called you, I've called you, I've forgiven you, I've loved you, I've blessed you over and over again. I've sent people to tell you, hey, listen, you're drifting or you've drifted. And then finally, he's just saying, okay, just, I'm letting go. There is that day of judgment where God says, enough is enough. And in, in his grace and in his kindness, sometimes it's just to keep evil from spreading. Just to keep wickedness from going further, to cause you to return, or to cause you from stop spreading something counterfeit and wicked. Verse 12, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. See, the gospel is this constant ever-present reminder that God created us and loves us and designed a better way than we currently live. Right then in the garden before sin, that God had created a relationship between humanity with one another and humanity with God, and that that was God's design. And God said, now all, all you're responsible for is to worship me, is to glorify me. In all that you do, enjoy the world, enjoy one another, Build families, multiply, reproduce, fill the earth, he said, but just worship me. That's how you're made. And as human history obviously knows, we've all failed that. So we've all just said, hey, I know better than God in this moment, right? Whether we've consciously said that or or subconsciously said, well, I know that God says that, but I'm just going to, what could it hurt? Or I don't want to do that. I'm just going to do this. And that's the world we live in today, broken by sin. And so God paints this picture of a preferred future and says, here's how I'm going to accomplish that future. I'm going to come down, I'm going to give my son, God in human flesh, you're going to come down and live the life you were called to live and then die your penalty. I'm going to pour out my judgment on Jesus. My eternal wrath will go out on my son. As we see Christ lifted up on the cross, we hear him say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the judgment of God is poured out on Christ instead of us. That's eternal judgment. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't judge humanity throughout history. Sometimes I said, even in, in his mercy, just to stop the spread of evil, just to prevent things from going further. But then there's that message of hope, but in Christ, who lived and died and rose again, you can find redemption. You can find healing, you collectively, you individually, that I will restore all things. And so as God continues to paint that picture of what it's supposed to look like, he reminds us that through Christ, that is what it looks like. That in Christ, we get to experience that now and then fully forever. That in these days, we get to experience redemption. And and I say this, we will constantly need repentance. All of us. We will constantly, our hearts will constantly drift. John Calvin, 500 years ago, just made a comment that has lived on since him. He says, our hearts are factories for idols. We just turn out idol after idol after idol. We repent and break this one. We've got 10 more sitting here. That we are just constantly making idols that we worship. Verse 13, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the lifted hills, And against every high tower and against every fortified wall and against the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft. Let me just give you some modern equivalents really quick. The cedars of Lebanon and oaks of Bashan boasting of our own personal strength and security. Lofty mountains and uplifted hills, that pride of nation. Every high tower and fortified wall, military power. Ships of Tarshish and beautiful craft is economic strength. That sound familiar? I think we live in the greatest nation on the planet. I think we live in the greatest nation that's ever been. Flaws and all. Baggage of our history and all. We live in far, by far, the most prosperous nation ever. Because of that, we rely on these things. Our own personal strength and security, our own comfort, our own economic stability, our own military, whatever it might be, we forget it's God, God who is bigger than all these things. Verse 17, it says, And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols shall utterly pass away. I moved this verse around from earlier when we were talking about idolatry, but Romans says this, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped the served creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Here's what he says. You have traded in worship of the created rather than the creator. He speaks to them, and in this context, he's talking about sexual sin, he's talking about gossip, he's talking about violence, he's talking about lying, he's talking all kinds of things. And in each one of those cases, what he's talking about is trading in worship of God for worship of something God created. Just understand that everything we, in any time we trade in worship of the creator, For worship of anything else, it's created things. Whether it be an experience or a feeling, a a position of authority, and, and a family. Again, good things that God created that we misuse can become idols. Verse 19, it says, And the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. When he rises to terrify the earth. from this preferred future to hate between here and there is a lot of judgment Verse 20 in that day again looking to that time of judgment mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold which they made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats those are local things that were happening in their day to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts from the, the cliffs from the before the terror of the lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Verse 22, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for what account is he? Here's how he closes this. And here's our takeaway. Here's what we need to hear. All those things that we tend to put before God, we tend to do because of the eyes of other men. Is it really you that looks at the front of your house and hopes everybody loves it? Or are you just really hoping your neighbor does? It's because of other people. And he just says this stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For what account is he? And it just brings us all the way back to Genesis, where God exhales the breath of life into the nostrils of Adam and reminds us remember who gives life? That's who you worship. Everything else is false. True worship, we'll end with this, true worship does not long for what the world does, but only for Christ. Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus keeps our hearts from idolatry and keeps our worship pure. Psalm 119 says it like this, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And I'll say... For your grace and for your mercy, when I deserve nothing but judgment, you're still loving and benevolent and graceful. Because you haven't completely wiped us out yet, God, we should know your grace. We should trust in your forgiveness and your love. We should allow for the fact that we will never get it right, but we should never stop striving. Jesus, you are a good and gracious God. You are a generous Savior. You are God who gave his life. And you're the Savior who lives. You're the creator of all things, and we must place all of ourselves in you. Let us hold nothing back. I know that's a lifetime pursuit, Jesus, I know. But it starts today. Whatever's on our hearts, whatever you've convicted us of, whatever you're speaking inside of each one of us, let us lay it down symbolically laying it down at the foot of the cross where you were nailed for that sin. Let us repent and return. Whether that be for those here that don't call themselves believers, may they they say, okay, I want to be a follower of Jesus. For those of us who have been walking with you for a long time, let let us hear the voice of what you would convict us of. Let us be forever transformed in your image. It's in your name, Jesus.